This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Good morning, everybody. It is great to see you in person, even though we're doing it anyway. What? Oh, not, not nothing. Um, blessed to have you with us today. If you need a Bible, grab a Bible. Open to Matthew chapter seventeen. But I want to, I want to reflect a, for a moment on something that Pastor Sean was saying, and kind of what is connected to the Bible study today. The title of today's message is Counterculture King. You've heard of counterculture before, and sometimes it's put in a negative context, isn't it? It's like you are counterculture, you're against what society stands for. But something that I loved about I love about Jesus and seeing in the Gospels is that, that Jesus never allowed himself to be pigeonholed or fit into other people's agenda. Even when it came to his own disciples, he was representing his father. And it went, to some degree, it went against everything else everybody else wanted of him or wanted from him. And today represents something important, today being Pentecost. We're not going to have a second or third Pentecost. Pentecost was a once and for all thing that happened where God Almighty gifted us with his Holy Spirit. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ that you can start, you can receive the Holy Spirit and, and start to be influenced by the Spirit of God. What we can cry out for is, is an outpouring of God's Spirit, an, an empowering of God's Spirit. And boy, do we need it now more than ever in our city, in, in our country, around the world. Oh God, we want to see you pour out your Spirit and people respond. How beautiful it is when people walk and are influenced by the Spirit of God. I have a Pastor Tim's Fails story for you this morning. I, I rather enjoy these stories, and I thought, you know, maybe I shouldn't share some of this stuff. Maybe it's too much because people think pastors are supposed to never do anything wrong. That's a lie. If the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 confesses his struggles with making mistakes, and I'm sure that I can use it as an illustration of, of desiring to walk and be influenced by the Spirit of God or being influenced by my flesh. So we went camping this last week, and we were up in the mountains with, with our family, and we had some, some friends there with us. And one of the things that I like to do when I go camping is I really love meeting new people. So whoever's around us, whenever there's opportunity, I, I go and introduce myself and say, hey, how are you doing, you know, and get to know people. I just, I just you know, I like people, even though I joke and say that I don't like people all the time. I really do. I do. So there's this next door person where we were staying, and and I was waiting for this lady to come outside so I can go over and introduce myself to her and talk to her, you know, get to know her a little bit. So she came out, and I went over and, and started to talk to her, and she just laid into me. She said, Who's, who are all these people? And there's kids over here with crossbow shooting, and I almost got shot, and my two dogs I had to put them in the house. What's wrong with you people? And I'm like, well, you know, there's actually not that many people. Yes, there's all kinds of people. I can see them. And I almost got shot. I'm like, well, you didn't get shot because you're still here, right? So everything's fine. And, and, and there's no crossbows. We don't even have crossbows. We have bow and arrows. 
So, and there's not a ton of people. There's, I counted six different groups of people up there. And I said, listen, I know who's here. There's not six groups of people and you're wrong and you need to calm down. She said, don't you dare talk to me like that. Don't you dare take that tone with me. And I said, the only reason that I'm talking to you like this is it's because this is how you're talking to me. And I just, you know, I had that moment that you're an idiot, Tim. You're an absolute idiot. And I just stopped and I said, you know what? I am really genuinely sorry for talking to you like that. I have no reason, and I don't want to continue to talk to you like that. I just wanted to come over here and introduce myself and and maybe get to know you a little bit. And I'm really, I, I really, truly, I said it over and over again, I'm, I'm, I'm desperately sorry and apologize and ask for your forgiveness for talking to you like that. There was no reason that I should have done that. And you just saw, like, you know, when you look in somebody's eyes, you just see the wall crumble. And she said, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry too. Um, in all honesty, I came out here with guns blazing, you know, just to, you know, to, to take care of what I thought needed to be taken care of. And we had a great conversation for some time after that, get to know each other a little bit. And, and um, you know, she's a 70 years old, just lost her two parents, a widow, a widower, uh, or she's widowed, I'm sorry, and and um, just trying to navigate life by herself, you know, and gets a lot of new things thrown at her that, that she's not really used to dealing with, and and um, so we got to connect on a deeper level, and it was really it was really special. It was it was, and it was a, a good lesson that that we make mistakes. I'm just like you guys, you're just like me. We all make mistakes sometimes, but we need to be about and crying out to God that we are being influenced by his spirit and not influenced by our flesh. Because I obviously defaulted to the flesh when I had somebody coming at me and accusing my kids of doing something that they weren't doing. And that's the heart of Pentecost, God. Allow us to be influenced by your spirit. And then the shameful moment happened, you know, after we're having a decent conversation, we're getting to know each other, I'm getting ready to leave, that she says to me, so what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. I already apologized, so you can't hold that against me. And she chuckled and said, no, it's, it's fine. Come back later. We'll hang out some more. Counterculture king is about Jesus not being who society says he has to be, not being what a culture says he has to be. It's him rightfully representing who God the Father is and what his kingdom is going to look like. And you know, if there's one thing that is so clear through all of Scripture over and over and over and over and over again, God wants you, he wants me to care about our neighbors. He wants us to love them and to pour ourselves out for them. And all this craziness that's happening right now in all these different cities across the United States, those are our neighbors. So when Sean makes a declaration that we need to be praying, we need to be praying not just for the sake of nonviolence, but for the sake of love and compassion for our neighbors who are dying. Because we're all in this together. We are one tribe. 
I have a couple verses that I jotted down in, in these verses came to mind when I was thinking about neighbors and my neighbor in Utah and that experience that I had and the Lord teaching me a lesson. Romans chapter 15, verse 2 says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. See, the gospel is, is not as myopic as everybody in the world is apart from the gospel. It's about me. You know, please your neighbor for their benefit, not for your personal benefit, because it's for your edification. You know that word edification means to build up. And that's what happened with this this woman in Utah is that we started a relationship. Grace and I have her phone number now, and the next time we go up, we're going to see if she needs us to take anything up. I'm just saying she's our neighbor. We want to care about her. We want to care for her. We know the position, position that she's in, and the relationship has started to be built on something now, built on what I hope she received when we communicated it to her, was that she's our neighbor and we care about her. But we can so easily make it about ourselves again and, and our rights and my right. And you didn't get shot, lady. So why are you crying? Another verse, is James chapter 2, verse 8. This is a beautiful verse in context of neighbors. Look at this. If you really fulfill the royal law, Think about that. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. You fulfilling the royal law by loving those around you, loving your neighbor, you do well. You're doing good. Because it's so difficult for us to take those steps of faith to pour into other people's lives and edify and build up relationships if we don't see a benefit personally that's connected to our study in matthew chapter 17 this morning if you haven't turned there already before we jump into the word let's go to the lord in prayer father we thank you that you are greater than our mistakes you're greater than the things that we do and say that we wish that we can take back and we can't, but we can repent, we can apologize, and we can seek restoration because of your great love that you have for us. So, Father, we pray that, that, that we would be more connected to your culture, what you've cultivated for us to be a part of, and that part of that looks like as we love you and you pour out your love into us, that we love each other. We love our neighbors. And that in the midst of all this craziness, God, that, that we would be a light and a salt, that we are different. We're connected to a different culture. We're connected to your glory. Father, we thank you for that time of worship that we can offer you the fruit of our lips and this time in your word that we can submit ourselves to your word as an act of worship and, and apply your word to our lives and our, our tithes and offerings, God. We don't want to do that in compulsion, God, but as an act of worship, we want to offer you our tithes and offerings. Bless your word this morning, we pray. We love you. We look forward to seeing what you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. 
counterculture king in chapter 17, verse 1, um, we're going to look at three different positions here, if you will, of Jesus acting kind of in a cultural context, okay? So connected to obviously the kingdom. Number one is the transfiguration. Let's start in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now, we need to take note of a a couple things. First of all, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and some people believe that the reason that he had to take them was because they were the troublemakers. You know, like, he'll keep them closer. So, hey, you guys will be fine. You three come with me. You know, like mama at the supermarket. Not worried about those ones. Those ones, you're in the shopping cart, okay? But I don't know if that's true because as we looked at a month or two ago in our study of the disciples, the masses, the the 70, the 12, and the 3, those people who desire to be closest to Jesus, Jesus allowed them to be closer to him. So I think that that's more indicative of their heart to be with Jesus. And Jesus says, come, let's come with me. Let's go to the mountain. Take note with me, point number two on this first verse is where did they go? They did not go to the beach because the mountains are always better than the beach. So sorry, guys. I know that this is a continuing, this is a continuing area of conflict, but Jesus is going to the mountains because it's far superior and, and he's going to reveal himself to them. It's kind of an inside joke if you're part of our church family. But anyway, he goes on a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. I was reading a commentary on this a, a while ago and and um, it said something really profound. I really liked it and it stuck with me. It said that it was more of a miracle for Jesus to shield his glory for such a long time than for him to reveal it for this short moment. This is who Jesus is. And he, he shows them, he reveals his true nature to them in his glory, the glory of the Father. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So we have Jesus reveal his glory, and then we see we have uh, Moses and Elijah appear. Now the reason that Moses and Elijah appear and are talking to Jesus is because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, which Moses represents, and he's the fulfillment of, of the prophets, which is what Elijah represents. And then we see very quickly Peter open mouth, insert foot. But why did Peter say this thing? And can we really hold it against him? This is what he says. Hey, Lord, I'll build three tabernacles or three tents or places for you guys to dwell. This is a good thing that we're here and I'm handy and I can take care of it. But he doesn't even finish what he's saying when, I like how it says, a bright cloud. 
overshadows them. And God Almighty speaks. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. A big emphasis was put on Moses, always was. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. A big emphasis is put on the, prophet, the prophets and especially Elijah. Elijah did not die, which we can't really go into the, the, the theology behind it, but, but we see in Scripture that, that Elijah was a, a flaming chariot, came down and grabbed him and took him into heaven, and he didn't die. He was prophesying of the coming Messiah. Now he was standing there talking to him. And this time of them being together was the representation of Jesus being it. He was the one who didn't abolish or take away the law. He fully fulfilled the law. He was the fulfillment of all the prophecies, even of the greatest prophets. And then when the voice speaks, what does the voice say? This is my son whom I will please hear him. Everybody would point to the different people, the patriarchs, but, but God wants everybody to be very clear. He's the one that you need to be listening to. And when they open their eyes, what do, do they see? They don't see the three of them still there. They only see Jesus. And this is true for, for you and for, for me. What can happen is there's, there's other things that can get our attention. And when we open our eyes in a place of humility or humbling, we, we, we tend to see other things. Listen, I heard somebody say this multiple times when I was a young Christian, and I, thought, I just thought to myself, I don't know about that. But they say, everything that you deal with, every issue of life, everything that you're going to experience, everything connects back to Jesus to the cross. Everything can be taken back to that. I'm like, I don't know. That seems kind of extreme. But you know what I've experienced in my life? Everything is connected to Jesus. It is by one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again. And when they open their eyes, they see Jesus. Arise and do not be afraid, Jesus says to them. When they had lift, uh, opened, lifted up their head, their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Going into the second portion, that's the first. And, and I think the takeaway for the f first section is that you don't know what's really going on, do you? I mean, listen, I left to go camping at the beginning of the week. I didn't hear about all the crazy riots and everything happening until we were getting ready to come back down. I was shocked. I went up, in a in, people were in a place of confusion and craziness, and I came down with mass hysteria. Like, I, the news from, from within a span of three days was completely different and focused differently. Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? You don't. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But God is working behind the scenes and doing things that, that you don't understand, but he's the one in charge. He's going to take care of it. Just like the transfiguration. There's things that you can't see that you don't understand. And maybe when you do see him, you're like, oh, it's built tabernacles. Just chill out. God knows what he's doing. He 
wants you to trust him, he's going to take care of it. Verse 9, now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, you know what happens? We're going to see in the next verse. But you know what happens oftentimes? It's kind of like a Christian joke a little bit, you know. Oftentimes what happens when you're coming down from the mountain? You come down from the mountain into the valley. And, and as they're leaving the mountain, the glory of God's been revealed. And they're going down to the valley. The first thing before the next thing that happens is Jesus um, is going to, well, he he. he pronounces or he says that he's going to die and be and be buried and risen from the dead and notice this that we'll see this again in this chapter that he's constantly telling them very clearly that this is going to happen but they are so emotionally invested in who they want jesus to be that they don't ever receive it and we'll talk about more about that in a minute but this is a question, and it's a valid question. They said, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Because Jesus is there, and they just saw Elijah, right? So if the, if the scribes say that Elijah must come first, then why isn't he here already? And why are you, if you're the Messiah, why are you here? And Jesus answers and says, indeed, Elijah is coming first, and will restore all things. And then at the end of that, we see what? We see that he was speaking of John the Baptist, who functioned in the spirit of Elijah. But... There's also the part that we can't really get too much into this morning is that since Elijah was taken up in a fiery chariot, we believe and many people believe that that he's going to be represented at the second coming of Jesus Christ as one of the two witnesses that are murdered in Jerusalem because as the as the Elijah representing the prophets of the Old Testament is going to be able to testify against the world of the rejection of the Messiah, and ultimately Jesus' second coming. Now, like I mentioned, we can't really get into that too much, but, but there's a dual fulfillment in that John the Baptist is operating in the spirit of Elijah, and Elijah is still going to restore all things. He's going to testify against the world of their rejection of the Messiah, even at his second coming. Chapter 17, verse 14 and when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Notice this, that he's talking, he says, Oh, you faithless generation. He's not talking to the people. Now, he's making a, a general statement about the, the, the amount or level of faith of that generation, but he's specifically talking to the disciples who cannot do one of the things that Jesus gave them the power and authority to do. This is probably about a month before Passover, which means we're getting close to Jesus' 
crucifixion and burial. We're toward the end of the three years that they spent with each other. And Jesus' frustration is understandable. And it's like, what are you guys doing? You know, like, what, how, how long am I going to bear with you? Again, I like to connect this to dealing with my children. How many times have I told you? How long do I, am I going to bear with you? This is what the expectation is. This is what I told you is going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And see what it's directly connected to? This is very important for us this morning. Look at this. It's directly connected to their lack of faith. See, there's so much that we miss out on on a daily basis because we don't take steps of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, we just try to figure stuff out and just try to get through the day. And there's more to be said about that because Jesus gives them instruction. He says here, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, even if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. You guys, it's so important. And a brother said to me this to me after the first service, and I thought it was really profound. And I appreciate him coming up to me after the service and saying this. He said, you know, Tim, I've been a Christian for a long time. He's, he's an older gentleman. He said, I've been a Christian for a long time. And for the, the first part of my Christian life, I realized, or I thought, rather, that, that faith was a noun, that it was, that it was an, an entity. It, it existed as a noun. I, I later realized that, that faith is a verb. Faith is something that's, that's exercised, that's demonstrated. And we exercise and demonstrate our faith on a daily basis look what jesus said to the disciples he says well this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting well what if they had been praying and fasting do you think they would have been able to cast out the demon do you think that they would have been in a better place to be able to take their priorities and put them to the side for this this boy that was suffering but it's easier, you know, when we, we're just walking. We're not walking in authority. We're not walking in the power of God. We're not walking in the spirit of God to say, hey, you need help? Ah, sorry, I can't help you. Bummer. Hey, Jesus, can you help this guy? I mean, we can't help him. We tried. We can't help him. And he says, oh, you faithless generation. You couldn't do it because of your unbelief. And, and for us, I, I want to be honest with myself, honest to the scripture, and honest with you, that we miss out so much on a daily basis from the blessings of God because of not walking in faith, taking steps of faith. We have to. It has to be as we exercise what's revealed about who God is and God's character. And the closer you stay connected to Him, the closer you make those priorities in your life of preparation yeah you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow i don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but god knows what's going to happen tomorrow like we looked at in point one right but you can be preparing for it by making those the top of your list of priorities and and, and praying and fasting so that i don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but but i want to be ready for it i want to be taking steps of faith walking in the spirit 
So not only do I not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but so that I'm prepared for the things that I encounter. First thing they experience coming down the mountain, Jesus says, I'm going to die. Oh, no, you're not going to die, Jesus. Second thing, here's this guy comes, needs his son healed. Oh, we can't do it. Jesus can do it. I mean, ultimately, we should be pointing people to Jesus anyway, shouldn't we? But we should also be operating in the anointing, the blessing that he's given us to touch people and obviously direct them to him for healing. Because of your unbelief, however, this kind does not come out with prayer and fasting. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they want, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Again, we have to take note that Jesus made it abundantly clear what his intention was and that he was going to go to the cross, be rejected, murdered, and he was going to raise from the dead. But nobody had any capacity to receive that from him. So they were all shocked when it did happen. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. When he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? Now, this is interesting because the temple tax was something that they tried to put on the people, but there were some people that were exempt from it. Some priests were exempt from it. The Sadducees didn't believe in paying it, so they didn't pay. So it's more of a challenge. Does your masters pay the tax or not? And then Jesus, knowing what Peter is going to say to him, asks him this question, the kings of the earth, who do they take taxes from? They, you know, I, I'm going to make my kids pay rent if they're living with me in my 20s, right? Hey, you get a job, you, you pay your part of it. But the idea is this taxing isn't done for the sons, the strangers, I'm sorry, not done to the sons, but to the strangers, to the people who dwell in the land. Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. So Jesus there, he says, it. he says, the sons are free. We are not bound to pay this tax. And then this beautiful thing is said. What does he say? He said, but so they don't take offense. And that's powerful if you, if you think about that right there. Because right now, people are not shy to offend. In fact, I think some people are standing up offending people for fun on purpose. And the king of kings. So, so Jesus, the counterculture king, if what everybody else would do, stick up our chest and say, this is our rights and we don't have to pay that stupid tax and you can eat it, we don't care. Instead of saying, I don't want to cause anybody to be offended, so, so give them the tax. And notice that Jesus requires an action. This is also connected to the faith element. Jesus requires an action from Peter, which if, I, if you've not heard me say this before and you want to fact check me or look into it, every single time Jesus heals somebody, there's always some kind of action connected to it. Do you know why? Because faith is a verb. This is the whole idea behind James saying, uh, 
faith without works is dead. It's some, hard for some people to wrap their head around it, but faith is a verb. Faith requires movement. If you say you believe something, then your actions had better reflect that. Jesus wasn't hanging out with the guy with the crippled hand, right? And he's like, yo, check out your hand. Whoa, dude, my hand's whole. Or the guy laying down on his bed, hey, pick up your bed and walk. Dude, I can't pick up my bed. Can't you see I'm a cripple? This guy's making fun of people. No, he, he, he responds in what? In faith. He picks up his bed. And you know the funny thing about that story? He, he walks away. All right, see you later. <laughs> he told me to go. I'm, I'm out of here, right? Jesus always requires some kind of physical action. So why wouldn't we manifest and work out our faith as a verb by the things that we do? He says, Peter, this is, this is my favorite part. Hey, Peter, check your uh, dress pocket or whatever, you know, your robe pocket. Check your satchel. Why, Jesus? Just do it, man. Okay. Whoa, there's money in here. Jesus could have done anything he wanted to do. He could be like, you know, like a magician. Oh, check this out. There's the money. There's your taxes. Go pay. But for Peter to be operating in the faith that he said he had in Jesus, Jesus says, go fishing, which was his old profession, right? And he says, use a hook, which Peter probably wasn't the only or, or very accustomed to. I'm sure he fished with hooks too, but he fished with nets mostly. So he says, go to your old stomping ground where your boy, your buddies are going to be there and you take a hook and catch a single fish. What am I going to do with this? Just, just go do it. And when you get the fish out, first fish you pull up, take the money out of its mouth and go pay the tax. Do you know why? Because when we're connected to God's kingdom culture, when we're operating in faith, taking steps of faith, influenced by the Holy Spirit, God's provision is always available. He will always pay. He will always take care of us. He will always provide. I've seen it over and over and over again. And you cannot experience the provision of God unless you're in that need. Now, believe me, I've seen people chalk up things working out because, oh, thankfully my boss isn't a jerk and gave me extra hours for those bills that I had to pay. Did you pray about it? I did. Well, then, then give glory to God, not your boss waking up. Because God's the one that takes care of you. God's the one that provides for you. Take steps of faith, walk in faith, and see the power of God manifested in your life. In closing, let's look at these three things one more time. Number one, the transfiguration. You don't know what's really going on, but Jesus does. Behind the scenes, Jesus was fulfilling the law. He was fulfilling the prophecies. Those two were represented, and, and they didn't understand what was happening, but there were things happening behind the scenes that they were given a glimpse into. God knows what's going on. And you don't. I don't. It's okay. Trust him. Number two, the healing. The healing of the, of the boy. Have faith. Be prepared for what lies ahead with prayer and fasting. Have faith. 
Again, this, this connection to faith. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. God's working things out for the good in the background, but be ready to be used by him. Be ready to have our priorities in order so that we can walk confidently in the, in the gifts that God has given us. And that, by walking in those gifts and action, verb, faith, the glory of God will be revealed. It is. It always is. Number three, the tax season. You guys know tax season got pushed back this year? Well, this is the tax season, too. Even if you're right, you don't have to seek to offend because God will always provide. Even if you're right, you know? You know what? You know, I, like, I like what Paul says to the Corinthians. Why, why not rather be wronged? Is it that big of a deal? You know? Hey, wronged me. Yeah, people get wronged all the time. And you know what? Spoiler alert. Sometimes I wrong people, too. Why not rather be wronged? Even if you're right, don't seek to offend. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us today and, and for loving us so passionately, so faithfully, even when we make mistakes like, like the disciples did, like the, like the Apostle Paul talks about. God, you are, you are faithful and you are good. So God, we pray that you, your word to us this morning would be sown onto fertile soil of our hearts. That we would receive it, that we would take it, and that we would bear fruit to your glory. Not to our glory, not to what we have to offer, not what we've done, but what you've done and what you continue to do. We love you and I pray for my brothers and sisters for the rest of their week, that they're blessed, that they're encouraged, and that we can walk in faith as a verb, take steps of faith, and behold your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.